Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And we gather before you together today as your people, people whom you have set apart and set aside for your glory and your namesake. God, there is nothing else for us to do before You but worship. You are good and You are great and You are worthy of all of our love and all of our devotion. So, God, we pray that You would be blessed by our singing today. That as we raise our voices and think about what it is that we sing that it would be music not only to our ears, but to Your ears. We pray that the playing of our instruments would be pleasing to You today. God, we pray that the preaching of Your Word would be pleasing to You. God, help us to hear Your Word well today. To hear it as it is. The very words of God. God, we ask that You would And Your people now fill us with Your Holy Spirit in such a way that we are transformed through the preaching of Your Word. God, we pray for those who are surely among us who do not know You, who do not love You. God, we ask that You would in undeniable ways, reveal Yourself to them now. That their hearts would be opened. That their hearts would be softened. That they would believe the good news of Your Gospel today. That this would be the hour of their salvation. God, bless our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can have a seat. If you've got kids that you'd like to take to the nursery or the classrooms, you're free to do that now. A couple of announcements for you before we move on to the sermon today. For those of you who are affirmed members of Veritas Church, a reminder that tonight at 6 o'clock here we have a a members meeting. So uh, please make every effort to be here. If you are a member and you don't show up, we plan to remove you as a member tonight. If you, if you can be here, we would love for you to be here. And we're going to be talking about some uh, calendar items for the, the, the 2014 and uh, some other things that are happening. And as well, and uh, most exciting, we are going to have our first in-house baptism, Veritas Church. So we have uh, historically always done this uh, down at the river or uh, at the lake. Well, there is no lake, I hear. Well, maybe there is, actually, after, uh, thank you, uh, God, for the rain that we've had. But uh, 
It's pretty chilly outside, so we're going to be doing a, a baptism tonight here. Uh, Chris Hudson's going to be baptized in a, an animal trough, actually. So we're really excited about that. We have found something that we think is going to meet our needs perfectly, and so we'll be getting that set up this afternoon. So uh, the invitation to be here for that baptism, I want to extend to everybody, even if you are not a member here, you are totally welcome to be here tonight at uh, 6 o'clock and uh, share with us in that uh, first portion of our time together for that, uh, that baptism. Uh, we, would, we would love for you to, uh, to be here for that before we move on to our, our, our members meeting. So while it is a, a, member, a meeting tonight for our affirmed members only, please, those of you who are not, don't let that stop you from coming and and sharing in the joy of, of baptism. So hope to see you tonight. As well, Wednesday night, we start our next membership class. So this Wednesday night and running for the next four Wednesdays from 6.30 to 8 o'clock is our membership class. Uh, for those of you who are interested in membership, it is a requirement. Uh, come and hear about the theological, practical distinctions of our church so that you can make a, an informed decision whether or not this is a church that you'd like to become a member at. We'd love you to. So uh, if you're in that position, please come out to the class. Uh, if you are already a member, we are opening the invitation to you as well. In fact, encouraging you to come because uh, the last time we did an actual membership class, we've been doing it just with some uh, video that's been online for several years, uh, but we haven't done a live membership class in, in a few years now. And some things have changed just in how we communicate who we are as a church. So it might be a good refresher for even those of you who have been members here for a long time. So I'd like all of you to come out. If you are planning to come, though, um, it would be helpful to us if you'd get on the city and find the event and RSVP so that we can uh, have enough resources and, and handouts, etc., available for Wednesday night. If you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 36. If you didn't bring one with you, that's okay. We've got Bibles in a seat pocket in front of you. We would love for you to read along with us this morning. I will be preaching today through Genesis chapter 37, verse 2 through verse 36, but I'd like to read first this chapter of Genesis 36, which precedes what we're looking at today, verses 1 of chapter 36 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 37. Bear with me. This is a difficult text to read. Lots of names. It's quite honestly, I do not know how to pronounce. <laughs> so I will, I will do my... <laughs> But you don't either, so we'll just be none the wiser. But I will, I will try to read this uh, confidently at least, so it won't be a distraction to you. Genesis uh, 36, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. And the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, 
Baysmouth bore Raoul, and Oholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau, who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Raul, the son of Bazemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Canaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Bazemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Taman, Omar, Zepho, Canaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. The chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Raul in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Bazemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lodan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lodan were Horai and Hamam, and Lodan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Mahahath, Ebel, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai and Anna, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Oholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Keran. These are the sons of Azer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lodan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bala died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. 
Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hosham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avath. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hador reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehedabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs of Timnah, Alva, Jatheth, Ahalabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. I feel like I should receive an applause after <laughs> reading. <No. laughs> let's, let's pray. Let's pray now for the preaching of God's Word. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for giving us Your Word. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us. And thank You for giving us Your Holy Spirit so that we could understand truths that are only spiritually discerned. Thank You for making Your dwelling among us. Thank You for the great hope that we can have anytime we open up Your Word. The hope that we can come to know You more, come to love You more, to have our affections for You deepen and widen. So, we're thankful for this time, God. Will You please bless it? Our hope is that You be glorified and honored in all that I say and in all that we think. We pray this and hope for this. In the great name of Your Son, Jesus, Amen. The book of Genesis was written by Moses to the people of Israel about 1,400 years before Jesus Christ was born. Remember, Israel had recently, within about 30 years, been rescued from Egypt, and they were on the verge of re-entering into Canaan, the promised land, the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. Genesis is written in narrative prose, and it recounts, one, the primeval history of all of mankind. So every man, woman, and child can trace their initial primeval history to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then chapters 12 through 50 are a particular history of a particular people where we read about God's dealings with His family. So it's as if the first 11 chapters are this history of all of mankind, and then the lens zooms in on this family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we read about patriarchal history of these men. We can also divide the book of Genesis even further. In fact, Moses does divide the book up further. He does this by deliberately using 
a specific word and a specific phrase that signals a transition between episodes in his book. The word in Hebrew is toldot. And that word shows up 11 different times in the book of Genesis. That word is translated in English as generations or an account or a family line. Um, the word in the phrase that you'll recognize in the English Standard Version, which we just read from, is these are the generations of. So if we were to look back, we would see that word generations, that toldot, 11 different times. And each time it is meant to signal the reader, it's a literary technique, to say there's a transition now. Talk about a new dimension, a, a, a new part of these people, a, a new episode. And so we have, so far, the toldot of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We have the toldot of Adam, of Noah, of Noah's sons, of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, and of Esau, which is the one we just read. These are the generations of Esau in chapter 36. And the final toldot in Genesis is right here in our text today. Verse 2 of chapter 37, which reads, These are the generations of Jacob. So this final episode will focus on Jacob's family with a special focus, though, on one particular son of Jacob, Joseph. And it's long. It's the longest episode we find in the book of Genesis. 14 chapters long. Which is why many uh, scholars historically have called just these last 14 chapters a novella. It has all the characteristics of a short novel. And so we're going to be reading that. We're going to be studying the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis for uh, months to come as we finish up our sermon series on the book of Genesis. Now here's a, a, a warning. As we spend months now looking at the life of Joseph, we may be tempted to think the story is about Joseph. That's reasonable. We spend quite a while every week. You're going to come if you, if you choose to come back. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. It's going to take us a while. 14 chapters to work through. And so we may be tempted, this is always a caution when you're reading your Bible, to think that it's actually about Joseph, that the main point is Joseph, that the main character is Joseph, that all of our attention should be given to figuring out and discerning and understanding Joseph, but it's not. So we need to remember that this novella is in the middle of a bigger story, which is in the middle of an even bigger story. We've got to get the context. This novella is in the middle of a bigger story, which is Genesis, a story that Moses is telling. And Genesis is within an even bigger story, which is your Bible. So here's the big story. Let's talk for a while. I think this will do us good as we read chapter 37 today to remember the big story. Uh, the Bible 
the Bible is revelation from God. That is what the Bible is. The Bible is God's chosen means, His primary means for revealing Himself to man. And specifically, and most practically, the Bible is redemptive revelation. Now, there are other ways that God reveals Himself, but the only way God reveals Himself redemptively is through His Bible. So specifically, and most practically for us, we understand that this revelation from God is a specific kind of revelation. It is redemptive revelation. That means that these words are revealing to us how God redeems His people. Or saves His people. The Bible is redemptive revelation. So we remember how the story begins. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with it's just creator and creation and harmony and innocence and freedom. It really is absolute paradise. And then that is completely lost in Genesis chapter 3. That paradise is lost when man turned his back on the king and sided with God's arch enemy, Satan, or the serpent, or the dragon, Scripture calls him. Sin entered the world in Genesis 3, we learn, and it has been here ever since. It is clearly here today. And in fact, in your in your Bible, we, we never see that first two-chapter paradise until the very last two chapters of your Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. We never see that first two-chapter paradise until the very last two chapters of Revelation, which are looking still for us ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. So now, here's where we are in that story. We, like Joseph, we find ourselves between paradise lost and paradise regained. We're, we're in between this. We find ourselves in redemptive history. We are in the middle of God's history. We are in the middle like Joseph was. We're further down, but we're still in the middle of it. We're in the middle of God's redemptive history. We find ourselves right in the middle of God's, you could call it this, God's great love story. God's great love story. The Bible does tell the greatest of all love stories. And it's a love story that began in a very unexpected place. A very unexpected place in the garden upon Adam and Eve's cosmic treason against God. Not where you would expect a love story to begin. But that is what we find. God had told them what would happen to Adam and Eve if they went their own way. Do you remember that? God said, listen, you've got a garden of yes with one tree of no in the middle. I'm blessing you. I'm giving to you. I love you. This is all for you. But don't forget who's in charge. Don't forget that I am an authority and you are my people. And so He gave them a rule to follow. And He told them what would happen. Do not break this rule. And if you do, do you remember what He said? You will surely die. If you go your own way, then you will surely die. But what do we read? Rather than God wiping them out, 
which we might have expected, which I believe Adam and Eve expected, rather than God wiping them out, He spared them. And then what did He do? He made a promise to them. He made a promise to them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the, the first declaration from God of the Gospel. The good news in this tiny seed form. In this very dim form. But God came to Adam and Eve. And do you remember? He made a promise to them and He promised that He was going to rescue them from their sin. He was going to rescue them from sin to redeem them. How? By one day, sending a seed of the woman who would destroy the serpent. Remember that promise He made? Okay, it's going to be a war zone, he said, between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the dragon, and the seed of the woman. But one day, and he made this promise to his children, Adam and Eve, and before the dragon, that one day a promised seed will come. A promised child will come. And what did he say that promised child would do? I imagine him looking over at the dragon. He will crush the head of the dragon. God made this promise to Adam and Eve. And we keep reading through the book of Genesis, and we've been reading through the book of Generations. And many generations later, in Genesis chapter 12, God set his affection on a man and on a family. He came to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant he has never broken and never will break. God bound Himself to Abraham. And what did He do? He promised to bless him. Promised to bless Abraham. Promised to give him land. Promised to make him a nation. And He told Abraham that the promised seed would come from his family line. So you see what God is doing throughout the Old Testament as you read is He's taking a promise in seed form in Genesis chapter 3. Very little information. I'm going to send a rescuer. And then as you read through redemptive history, the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter until it's full-blown light in a stable which becomes full-blown light on a cross. And so He comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says that promised rescuer that seed of the woman, that child of the woman who will slay the dragon is going to come from your family line, Abraham. And that is how all nations on earth will be blessed through you. How could all nations on earth be blessed through one man? And Paul reflects back on Genesis and said, because it was the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemptive revelation. Now the dragon heard this covenant. The dragon is not unaware of God's word. He's not unaware of God's promises. He's not unaware of God's declared plan. He's not unaware of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. The promise of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the dragon's head. And so... We see throughout Genesis so far, and throughout history for that matter, the dragon at war with the womb. 
Have you seen that in Genesis? Do you see that today? The dragon is at war with the womb. Why is he so concerned with the womb in God's family in the book of Genesis? Because he knows the promise of God. He knows that one day a child will come from this family's womb that will crush his head. And so as we've read the book of Genesis, we've read about the dragon making war against the womb, the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of the woman as God prophesied would happen in Genesis chapter 3. And so we have not been surprised to read what has taken place in this family. We're not surprised at all the terrible things that have happened in this family which have threatened to stop this family line dead in its tracks. I mean, read back and you'll see the enemy's plans. You'll see the dragon's plans as he's trying to stop this family line dead in its tracks. Behind all of it, behind all of it is a promised child-fearing, child-hating dragon. We could go ahead to Exodus and read in chapter 1 that the dragon comes after the seed of the woman again. Do you remember? You remember what Pharaoh tells the Egyptian midwives to do with the young Hebrew boys that were born? Whose hand is behind this plan? And Pharaoh says, anytime a little baby boy is born, I want you to kill that baby boy. Didn't we read about it at the birth of Jesus Christ? Another tool of the dragon named Herod, when he heard that the rescuer was coming, the king was coming, he issued a decree as well, didn't he? What was the decree? Kill all the baby boys. Why? Because the seed of the dragon is at war with the seed of the woman. He is at war with her womb. Revelation captures the essence of this timeless battle in Revelation 12, 3, and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But, we have, don't we? Good news. We have good news. Here's one way of saying the good news. The dragon is no match for the king. The dragon is no match for the dragon slayer. Who is Jesus Christ? Satan is no match for God. What are we reading so far in Genesis? Despite Satan's best efforts, the promised seed is still coming. Despite his best efforts. Today, today we can say despite Satan's best efforts, the promised seed has come. This is one of the reasons genealogies are so important in your Bible. And it's one of the glories of genealogies. What are the genealogies? The greatest being the genealogy of Mary. Because what are these genealogies showing us? 
The seed of the dragon is at war with the seed of the woman. The dragon does not want this family to continue. He wants to stop this family line lest the promised seed, the promised child is born. And what is a genealogy? It is a God has won in the face of Satan. You hear this, Satan? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite your best efforts, the promised seed of the woman is here. That's good, good news. So we, as we're studying the book of Genesis, we're following this family, Israel. We're following this family, precious in God's sight. And we come now to the next stage, 14 chapters on the life of Joseph. I have decided not to slow down for chapter 36. I'm not going to try to exegete out of chapter 36, and some of you should be glad for that, I think. But we do have there the toldot of Esau, who was not the promised child, though he was the firstborn, before the toldot of his brother Jacob, who is the promised seed. It reminds us of chapter 25, where we read the toldot of Ishmael, who was not the promised seed, but was the firstborn, that preceded the toldot of his brother Isaac, who was the promised seed. There are patterns here. It's not random. Moses is a, a, a genius writer, and he's inspired by God as he writes this. But this brings us now to the life of Joseph. Let's just read verses 2 through 4. What we have in verses 2 through 4 is a setting of the stage of what we're going to read in the rest of the chapter. This is going to introduce us to Jacob's family at this moment in history. And we're going to learn a lot about his family in just these few verses. So here's the toldot. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here we meet Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old. He's a shepherd. Perhaps a tattletale. <laughs> I think that's probably the term we're familiar with. It says that he brought a bad report of them to their father. In a house full of boys, you're going to have tattletaling. This is not uncommon in our home. A child comes and there is something that he feels that we need to know as parents about one of his siblings. And we need to know it, of course, because there is great concern for the safety of their brother. This is the motivation behind it. We don't know exactly what Joseph is doing, but he is perhaps at his dad's request, he is uh, telling on his brothers. We also learn that he's daddy's favorite son. 
A lot of favoritism. This has been a problem in this family for generations. It's a generational problem. It keeps getting handed down. Uh, He's daddy's favorite son, and he is the object of his brother's hatred. I think Joseph is a, a good boy, but like many young men, he lacks character. I think that's what we have in Joseph. I think, he's a, I think he's a good boy. I think he's a good young man. I think he's, we would say he's got a good heart is what we might say. I think he's a good man, but, but he is, as many young men do, he does lack character. In other words, his, his goodness and these qualities that he, he has, may have, they have not been tested yet. They haven't been tested. They haven't been refined. His motives have not been sharpened. He's a good boy, but is he good because he wants to please dad and dad loves him and there's this relationship there? Or is he, is he good to please God? I mean, these motives aren't sharpened yet in his life. He lacks wisdom and discretion, we learn. As many young men do. He lacks wisdom and discretion. He is naive, I would say. He's naive. Time and suffering will do wonders for this young man. And truly, this is what forges character in anybody. Time and suffering. You want character. Be careful. You do want character. But make sure you're mindful of how the Lord plans to bring it to you. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5. Right? Suffering. Endurance, character, rock-solid character does not develop apart from suffering. Those of you who know the life of Joseph, he's no exception. So time and suffering is going to do wonders for him. And and poor boy, his brothers despise him. Just absolutely despise him. And this probably thanks to dad. This is probably thanks to dad. Jacob has, to the detriment of his family, and even Joseph, he has favored Joseph. It's really ironic because his favoring of Joseph is actually what leads to him being separated from Joseph. He's committing the same sin that his dad did. Isaac did the same thing with Jacob and Esau, and Isaac favored Esau, and Jacob received the brunt of that. And now here he is doing the exact same thing. I've experienced this in my life. Or some, something has happened in my life. I can remember occasions where things have happened and I, I've responded in a way that surprised me. I thought, where on earth did that come from? And then I'll remember my dad responding the same way. There it is. We have a tendency toward this, don't we? Well, Jacob is not an exception. He's favored his son Joseph. We see this demonstrated most clearly by this robe of many colors. A robe of many colors. I don't know what you picture when you picture this. My understanding is that it's it's probably not what most of us would assume. In fact, this is a strange phrase. It only shows up one other time in the Bible in 2 Samuel. And so it's, it's, it's probably not you know, a rainbow-colored bathrobe. <laughs> That's not what this is. 
If you did favor your son, you wouldn't give him that. (laughs) This probably denotes royalty is what this is. This is like a royal coat. This is... This is Jacob saying before his family and all, this is my chosen heir. This is the next leader of the family. This boy is my favorite. I've got this royal coat and he's the one that gets it. And the result is his brothers, it tells us in verse 4, they're not even capable of speaking anything peaceably to their brother. That word is shalom. It means literally they have nothing good to say to their brother. They have nothing good to say to Joseph. This is deep, deep hatred. They do not wish him well. They do not wish him well. And they've got nothing good to say about him. So this is the family. The stage is set. This is Jacob's family. And now we could divide these next verses into five different scenes taking place in five different locations is what's going to unfold. So scene one takes place at home in Hebron. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So, here's what we're going to see the hatred of Joseph's brothers is going to intensify, and it's going to intensify because of three factors that we can find. Three factors. Number one, Joseph's perceived disloyalty as a brother. Right? He brings bad reports to dad. He, he tells on us. He gets us in trouble. Whether he is being disloyal or not, we're not told. But it's at least perceived disloyalty. You don't do that as a brother. Unless your brother, we tell our boys this, unless your brother truly, truly is in danger, and it's truly for his good, do not tell us what they are doing. We want them to develop trust with one another. And what we tell them is, trust us. If he's doing something he shouldn't be doing, we will see him on plenty of occasions doing it. So fear not, son. There will be justice. Don't worry. Just love your brother. Love your brother. Don't accuse Satan's the accuser. Be like Jesus, the advocate. These kinds of things. Well, Joseph, it looks like, doesn't do that. Probably contributes to his brother's hatred. Number two, second factor, Jacob's blatant favoritism as a father. This is really painful and really destructive. Some of you have experienced this in your family. Some of you have seen the effects of blatant favoritism. Where there are members of the family, you may have been a member of the family where your parents' love for you was not what it should have been. It was not unconditional. It was a conditional love. There were conditions you needed to meet and you didn't meet them, but your sibling or siblings did meet them and you were set up to live in such a way that you felt like you had to always earn someone's love. Some of you still do that. It's just your knee-jerk relational reaction. And here it intensifies the hatred of Joseph's brothers. And then the third factor as we read about now, Joseph's indiscretion in the telling of his dreams. 
This is what he's going to do now. He's going to sit around the breakfast table with his brothers and he's going to share with them his dreams. And this is a lack of discretion. This is what discretion is. You don't have to tell everybody everything you know. That's discretion. Because you know it, because you think it, because you feel it, other people don't have to know it. They don't have to hear it. They don't have to think it with you. They don't have to feel it. And it takes discretion to say, I'm going to share this. I'm not going to share this. Discretion keeps appropriate things out of public. Well, if anybody has this dream that Joseph has, if any brother has this dream, he should keep it to himself. I mean, really, especially if your brothers already hate you. Especially. So if you're a brother here and you have this dream, just keep it to yourself. You should not share this with your brothers. But especially, Joseph, come on, especially if your brothers hate you. Because then it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. That's what this is. So here's Joseph sitting around the breakfast table. Joseph comes downstairs, his rainbow-colored bathrobe, sits down, stands up and says, hey guys, I had a dream. Would you like to hear about my dream? No. Well, here it is. This is what he does. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Very interesting, brothers. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that interesting, brothers? I had this dream last night, oh, brothers who despise me. And in my dream, you bowed down to me and worshipped me like I was some kind of god or something. Discretion. (laughs) Discretion. And what do people say? They've shared something with you and your response is, you know, I really don't need to know that. And their response is, well, it's true. Okay? (laughs) That doesn't mean you need to tell me. Being a truth teller does not mean you say everything that's true. You use discretion. And when you speak the truth, you always speak it in what? In love. His brothers said to him, this is like, are you kidding us, Joseph? Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So, what was the result? They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. Does not learn any kind of lesson, it would appear and told it to his brothers and said, listen to this dream. Behold, hey guys, I had another dream. Would you like to hear it? No, here it is. (laughs) Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Discretion. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept 
the saying in mind. That's a strong word. When it says his brothers were jealous, this is the the peak of their hatred. That's what Moses is doing here. He's, he's showing you how it's intensifying. We might throw the word jealousy around, but jealousy is taken very seriously in your Bible. And when it is this bad jealousy, it is evil, it is wicked. And we find it in lists like this of sins. Romans 13.13 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's a big deal. And they feel this kind of hatred for their brothers. That's the end of scene one. Now the stage is set, right, for a major confrontation. This is not going well between these brothers. So scene two moves us to Shechem, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So here it is. He's looking for another report. Sends his son on a sort of reconnaissance mission. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now here's what the author is doing. Moses is building the tension in this story. What's going to happen to Joseph? We know of the hatred that exists between Joseph and his brothers, and now Joseph is about to meet his brothers. And where is he about to meet his brothers? In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wilderness, far away from dad, far away from family, far away from accountability. And where are they? In Shechem. Shechem is a dangerous place for Jacob's family to be. Do you remember what happened in Shechem? Shechem is where Simeon and Levi went and had all the men circumcised and then killed them because one of them raped their little sister Dinah. So this is the hostile country that Joseph is about to find himself alone with his hateful brothers in. So we feel the tension that is building and brings us to the third scene, which takes now place now in in Dothan, verse eighteen through thirty one. They saw him from afar, right? Because the, the robe was bright and rainbow colored and the sequins and <laughs> and before he came near to them they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. That's their plan. We're not surprised by this impulsive plan to kill their brother. But now Reuben, the oldest, he has a counter plan. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. 
At this point, Reuben has good intentions. We'll find out later, though. He ends up going along with his brothers in a wicked plan to deceive their dad. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. We can hear, can't we, how hardened these hearts are toward their brother. They've just handed him over to certain death and they sit around and share a meal together. It's like Proverbs describes the adulterous woman who sins greatly and then wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. They've done much wrong. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, Judah speaks up here. So here's the third plan now that is put out there that they finally go with. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and when they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the rope in the blood. Which brings us now to the fourth scene, back home now. Back home in Hebron. The tension has mounted again because the looming question is, will they be able to deceive their dad? We know that's their plan. But will they be able to deceive Jacob? Now, deceiving Jacob is quite a feat. Remember, Jacob's name means trickster, deceiver. Jacob is the quintessential deceiver. No one can deceive like Jacob can deceive. So will they be able to, will they be able to trick their dad? Verse 32, And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Which brings us to the fifth and final short scene in Egypt. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So I'd like to make three observations. Three observations based on Genesis chapter 37 
Observation number one. Obedience does not guarantee success or ease in life. Obedience, obeying God, does not guarantee that you will be successful in life. And it does not guarantee that you will have any sort of ease in your life. Joseph is an example of that. Joseph's a good boy. Joseph is completely obedient. In fact, to this extent, Joseph is one of only three men in the entire Bible of whom personal sin is never mentioned. Now we know he was not sinless. We know he was not perfect. Romans 3.23 says all of sin, including Joseph, fall short of the glory of God. But in 14 chapters, not a single sin will be reported. In the Bible, you've got Joseph, Jesus, and Daniel. And that's it. He's an obedient man. He will be obedient to God. He will be faithful. And he will not have a life that is free from suffering. He's in a pit. He will not have an an easy life. In fact, we can almost be ensured of the opposite as Christians. God never says that, that His children will not suffer. He says His children will suffer. And why does He say His children will suffer? Because He loves them. Because He loves them. So I'm going to mature you through suffering. I'm going to build character through suffering. I'm going to increase your love for me through suffering. I'm going to show you how much I love you through your suffering. I'm going to bind you up. I'm going to love you. I'm going to teach you that you're dependent on me. And really, the most dangerous thing that God can do for anyone is to hand them over to a life full of ease and success. If everything that you touch in your life has not turned to gold, thank God for that. Thank God for that. Thank God for the times that the things you touch just turn into nothing. Thank God when your plans fail. Thank God when things do not go your way. Because God tells us that He disciplines those whom He loves loves you. You will not grow. You will not mature. He will not bring about your best apart from suffering. So if you were told or if you have been sold a version of Christianity that says obey God, obey God, obey God, and obey God so that you will be successful and God will bless it and make your life go easy, then you were told something that is not in the Bible. And that will be a motive that will be very destructive for you and you should abandon that motive and obey God out of gratitude. Don't obey God to get something. Obey God because He's God. That's a good reason. But as to whether or not you get physically blessed, I really don't know. Probably won't. You will be blessed spiritually immensely. But you will not be blessed physically 
until the new heavens and the new earth. That's where the prosperity is. Not in this lifetime. Obedience does not guarantee success or ease. Second observation, and it would be the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Did you see that? You'll keep seeing, but as you read this story, were any of you reminded of specifically the suffering of Jesus Christ? Listen to some of these parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him. The chief priests, we learn in Matthew chapter 26, and the elders conspired to kill Jesus. Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver, we read. And in Matthew 26, we've read that Jesus' disciple Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's brothers handed him over to the Gentiles. And in Matthew 27, Jesus' brothers, his people, handed him over to Pilate. Joseph, this is curious, suffered in silence, as we read. Not a word from his mouth. That Jesus also suffered in silence. Hebrew, uh, Isaiah 53.7 says of Jesus, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. I wonder if any of you have been as amazed as I am at the closed mouth of Jesus as He approaches the cross. Just willingly resigned to the will of His Father. Could have rescued Himself in a heartbeat. And yet no pushback. No fighting. No words. Silently very, very few words the entire time, silently makes his way to the cross. And it's interesting that we see the same thing in Joseph. Earlier, he could not keep his mouth shut. Remember. And now he suffers in silence. Like his great father Abel did before. Abel before Cain also suffered in silence. It appears the character is already being forged in Joseph He already appears to be a man who, when his responsibility is exhausted and God's providence is clear, he rests. That's what we should do too, even when we're suffering. When we've exhausted our responsibilities, we've done what we could do, and God's providence is clear, we should rest and know that we're in good hands. Now Joseph does this. And then finally, the final parallel, Joseph will suffer and eventually ascend to rulership and save His people. Those of you that know the whole story. And Jesus suffered and ascended to rulership and saved His people. Joseph, like Christ, travels from humiliation to exaltation for the salvation of God's people. Now Jesus is a better Joseph. He does not bring temporary salvation. He brings eternal salvation. He doesn't rescue merely from physical death. He rescues from eternal death. 
And one final observation. I'd like to spend a few minutes something here in this final observation for those of you who are here today who may be miserable, who may be suffering right now, who may be downcast. Christians, you know, are not always happy. We're always, we should always be joyful. So if you dig down deep enough, you dig down deep enough, we're at peace with God. We've got deep joy. But we're not always happy. And our churches and our sermons need to have words for miserable Christians. In fact, God is writing this story through Moses to miserable Israel. Who's crying out to God as they wander in the wilderness and saying, have you forgotten us, God? Are you asleep, God? Are you going to fulfill your promise? Will we ever see this promised land? They're in a pit. Like Joseph was in a pit. And so there is something here for those of us who are or will be miserable or downcast or suffering. We find hope. And we find hope in verse 36. It may not be apparent at first. You may not have read verse 36 and jumped for joy. But let me read it again. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now that sounds like, and it is, in one sense, the rock bottom of this story, isn't it? That does not sound hopeful. If it said one of his brothers had a change of heart and pulled him out of the pit or rescued him from the Ishmaelites and brought him back to dad, no, that would be the hopeful verse. But this, when you first read it, I mean, come on, this does not sound hopeful. A Joseph is never going back home alive. He doesn't go back home until Exodus chapter 13 when his dead bones are hauled back home. He's never going to see home again. Here we have the favorite son, Joseph, son of the patriarch, leaving the promised land, never to return again, and being sold into slavery, into whose hands? Because it gets worse. Into the hands of the descendants of Abraham's rejected heir, Ishmael. Can it get any worse than that? This is rock bottom. And yet, this is the most hopeful verse in chapter 37. But in one sense, when you're in it, certainly for Joseph and for Jacob, and you're in the middle of this, and you're experiencing verse 36, is not hopeful. This is not good news. It might as well be the doctor across the table looking you in the eyes and saying, it's terminal. Verse 36 is, is that kind of what sounds like unhopeful 
news. It sounds more like the words, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do. It sounds like the words, the baby will need to be taken away. It sounds like the words, there's no more food in the pantry. Sounds like the words, the divorce is final. Sounds like the words, it's over. This does not sound hopeful. It is not. It's terrible. It's painful at the time. Oh, please hear this. It is painful. It is terrible at the time. Isn't it, friends? When you're in the pit and it's dark and you feel abandoned and you can't see your way out and you don't know what's happening and you feel like God has left you, it is terrible. It is painful. It is dark. But, those who are reading this account, like you and like me, those who are reading this account, like Israel, who's also in a pit as they're reading it, they know, we know, how this story ends. And this is what makes verse 36 hopeful. Remember, this is a story in the middle of a big story, in the middle of an even bigger story. So, we don't get depressed when we read verse 36, do we? We want to come down and talk to Joseph, don't we? And say, Joseph, don't worry. Don't worry, Joseph. We know how this ends and it is going to work out. God has a plan, Joseph. God has not abandoned you. Do not worry. God is at work. We want to go down and tell Him that. We can see what God is doing Joseph, this is it, right? Joseph, if you don't end up in Egypt, your whole family is going to die. Right? This is God's great plan to save His people. Joseph, God's got to get you to Egypt. He's got to get you to Egypt because many years from now, your family is going to be on the verge of death because they've got nothing to eat back home. And they've got to somehow find favor in the land where the storehouses of food are, and that's going to be Egypt, and you're going to be like a king there, and you're going to be able to save your family. But that won't happen if God doesn't get you to Egypt. Joseph, God is getting you to Egypt. This story is going to have a perfect ending, and it's all going to come together in the end, Joseph, for your good and for God's glory. And you look back, and it's going to be this tapestry that you never could have predicted, but you would never want God to do it any other way. Amen. You want to tell Joseph that? But please, you think Joseph knows that in the pit? You think Joseph can possibly predict what God is going to do? Friends, no more than when you and I are in the middle of God's providence. But this verse brings hope to those who 
know how the story ends. It brings a basis to our hope when we are in the pit. So here I am in the pit. Okay, I hear it. I know. I hear the verses. Yes, I know God will never leave me or forsake me. Yes, I know God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And so I hear these things. I hear these things. Cheer up. Be hopeful. I know you're in the pit, but look up. God is faithful. God is faithful. But what is the basis for having that hope? What is the basis for believing that? Friends, it is a reasonable faith. Even God does not ask us to believe things that are just sort of fairy tales with no reality to them. He gives us doctrine to hold on to and it is proved doctrine. It is doctrine with evidence. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am working all things together for your good even when you're in the pit, just like when Joseph was in the pit, and here is your basis for believing I will be faithful to my promise. I've done it before. That's it. God says, listen, I'm not just up in the sky somewhere, disconnected from you, throwing a bunch of promises your way and asking you to will yourself into believing them without proving my faithfulness to you. God comes down. He engages with His people. And He proves Himself over and over and over again. And He overcomes seemingly insurmountable odds over and over and over again. And then He inspires one of His children to write it down so that you could read it today in Veritas Church. And you could be encouraged. And you could know that your faith has a basis. How Joseph, when he was in this pit, had to cling to God. We could say the theme of chapter 37 is this. God uses the evil deeds of Joseph's brothers to begin fulfilling His plan of salvation as revealed in Joseph's dreams of making Joseph a ruler. This is what God does. Joseph's going to get it because in chapter 50, he'll look at his brothers who he will be reconciled to. And they'll say, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. And he'll say, it's okay. Because what you meant for evil? God meant for good. Does the dragon have a plan? Oh, you bet he has a plan. You bet he has a plan. God's got a better one. <laughs> it is that simple. God has a better plan. And it is a plan to use the dragon's best plan for God's glory and our good. Amen. Only God can work this. The goal, I think, of chapter 37 from Moses is to comfort Israel with the knowledge that God can use evil human deeds to fulfill His plan of salvation. 
God overrides the wicked intentions of man over and over again by using their evil deeds to further and fulfill his great plans. Think of it this way. As the brothers sold their young brother into slavery, which was sinful, an abominable act, which they have full responsibility for and will be held totally accountable before God for. But as the brothers sold their young brother into slavery, they were unknowingly ensuring their future salvation. God's plans are great. Israel would be reading this in the wilderness, still not in the promised land, in the dark, as they were crying out to God, are you there, God? Are you asleep? God's people commonly ask Him that. Are you asleep, God? You taking some kind of a break? Where are you? I'm not feeling this right now. Do you really love me? Do you even hear us? And, and God responds through this story, do not interpret my tarrying as abandonment. Just because I tarry, and I don't rescue in the way you think I would, when you think I would, do not interpret that as abandonment. I'm working all things together for good. And we'll all see this in time. For us, we find comfort with the knowledge that God can use even evil human deeds to fulfill His great plan of salvation. This is good news. I'm sure you at times, like me, find yourself perplexed by the evil that is around you. Just, just perplexed. Dumbfounded by the evil that surrounds us. But verse 36 of chapter 37 reminds us that no matter what and no matter how things may seem, God is always on the clock fulfilling His great plan of redemption. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we just don't know if You could illustrate Your amazing faithfulness better than you illustrate it through this recorded life of your son Joseph. God, if there are people here today who, who happen to not be in a pit right now, God, will you embed this truth deeply in their soul so that when they do find themselves in the pit with no water, they will be reminded that You are a God who is able and willing to defeat seemingly insurmountable obstacles to accomplish Your great plan of redemption. And for those of us who are here today and who are on, on some level totally miserable, 
rejoicing, but sorrowful. Father, we pray that you wouldn't let anything comfort them but you. And if you tarry, God, I pray that you would protect them from the conclusion that they've been abandoned. That they would remember that these are your ways, God. And they are mysterious, but they are perfect and just what we need. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.